Thank you, Sean. Let's take our Bibles and turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 1. A couple of notes. Um, as many of you have noticed, you're visiting with us. Uh, we have um, had some issues with some lighting modules. You'll see some lights come on and off. That has nothing to do with the power of my sermon or uh, anything of that nature. Uh, we're in the process of getting that fixed, so please don't let that distract you. Hopefully dealing with it up front make it so it's not distracting for you during the service. We have Ecclesiastes Scripture Journals. They are on the South Welcome Center. If you would like one of those, uh, let's see if I have one down here. I don't. It's, uh, it's a little scripture journal that has space for your sermon notes, a space for the scripture. If you would like to send someone from your family to go grab one off the South Welcome Center, uh, you're welcome to do that. Kids, if you're in first through third grade, you can slip out to Children's Church as well. Um, and so if you would like to get one of those, they're about $5 a piece. You can put it in the offering plate if you want to pay for it online. We are going to be starting the series this morning. And so if you'd like to slip out at the beginning and grab one of those scripture journals so you can keep track of your sermon notes for the series. If you're a guest, we'd love to give one to you. But those are in the South Welcome Center right off that door. So if you'd like to slip out and grab one, please feel free to do so. Also, um, some of you may have some space in your reading schedule or your, maybe your devotional time for, to add a book if you're looking for a good book to read. I emailed this out, but at the, at the uh, resource center over here, you'll see a book that we have called Recovering Eden. And this is one of the resources that I'm using for Ecclesiastes. So if you'd like to kind of follow along throughout the week and read this before the sermon, after the sermon, to kind of further your study in the book of Ecclesiastes, we have them on the Resource Center. If you don't know how to use ChristianBook.com, Amazon, something like that, we have them for purchase there. You can just, there are certain envelopes there. You can put the money in there, drop it in the... um, in the offering boxes there in the lobby. But um, take a picture of it, purchase it if you'd like to read along with. It's really a fascinating uh, resource to help understand the book of Ecclesiastes. So if you'd like to pick that up, it's there on the, uh, on the resource center. Um, and so you'll see the stack there. It's called Recovering Eden. Black and green looks like this. And so if you'd like to pick that up, you can do that as well. Ecclesiastes chapter 1. It's always exciting to begin a new series. Looking forward to what God has for us. We kind of are going to embark on a journey because Ecclesiastes is neither a short book, uh, nor is it necessarily an easy book to hear. I highly recommend that you would pick up a scripture journal. Uh, There are going to be several things that will help you if you do that. You don't have to do it this morning, but they're at the South Welcome Center. It will help you as we work through the book, as you trace and make notes and draw. I'm going to ask you to highlight some certain things But I highly recommend you pick up one of those in the study because it's going to help you as we look at the wisdom that Solomon offers us and how we can apply that to our lives. This past week, I sent an email out to the church family explaining that we'll be starting this series this morning and also that I believe that Ecclesiastes is one of the most relevant books and it's one of the most earthy books. What does that mean? It's an earthy book. It means that it's immediately applicable to everything that you're going through. It's a very um, down-to-earth, relevant book for us today. Ecclesiastes deals with real life, work, relationships, conflict, peace, marriage, sexuality, wealth, wisdom, education. We can go on and on and on. Your everyday life, where you live every single day, is what this book is about. I believe that Ecclesiastes, properly understood, helps us in our most basic questions of life and builds a foundation for us on how we should live our lives here on this earth. Why study Ecclesiastes? Some of you, this book, if you've read it before, 
Some view this book as bleak, pessimistic, dark, depressing, even discouraging. Some of you are like, yep, it's going to be relevant to my life because that's exactly where I'm living. I read a commentator who said this, Ecclesiastes was obviously written on a Monday morning, right? (laughs) Why study this book together? I'm going to give you three reasons why I believe it's imperative for us to study through this book together. Number one, it's imperative for you to understand that the Bible is applicable to every part of your life. One of the biggest mistakes you can make is to think that the Bible is this high and lofty book that has to deal with all of these realities that are somehow out there, but doesn't really apply to me right now, tonight, tomorrow morning, throughout the week. doesn't really have anything to do with practical matters. It's very dangerous. And so one of the reasons why we're going to study this is to show you that it does have to deal with every point of your life. No doubt during this study at some point you're probably going to say, I didn't know that that was talked about in the Bible. Or, I recognize that verse, I didn't realize that was in Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is going to prove to you that you don't need the latest and greatest self-help book to have a good life. You simply need to understand, apply, and obey Scripture. There are questions about life that need to be answered. Some questions that you didn't even know that needed to be asked. I want to motivate you to look to Scripture for those answers. Number two, you need to recognize that the world around you is lying to you. Ecclesiastes brings truth to the center of your life. You may not even realize how much our hedonistic culture has been speaking into your life, and you've been believing those lies. And you didn't even know you were believing the lies. And so Ecclesiastes will insert truth into there and will stand as a foil to the hedonistic culture of our day. Thirdly, it's imperative that you are grounded in reality. This world is doing its best to distract you from the reality around you so you will get lost in a fake world that doesn't exist. The world around you wants to convince you That you need something more and that something more is needed to escape the harsh realities of the world. So take in a fake virtual reality. Whether that be in video games, online meetups, the metaverse, social media, whatever it is. The world is trying to draw you into a fake world that doesn't exist. A virtual reality that's never been accessible before in all of history. And now it is and the world is trying to draw you in to this fake world. And you need, as a Christian, to be grounded in reality, in the real things of life. Some are even drawn into social media to live a life that they know isn't a true reflection of their lives, and they're drawn into that life that doesn't exist, and they they end up believing that their social media life is their real life, and so they end up depressed. They end up not wanting to actually live this life, but live some other life they've created. And so they will take vacations and and have all these experiences, not because they actually want to experience them, but because they want everybody else to know they experienced them. I mean, what good is having fun if you can't take a selfie and let everybody else know you had fun, right? And if it's not fun, I'm going to pretend like it's fun, so everybody thinks I'm having fun. Because I've created this alternate fake reality, and Ecclesiastes demolishes that and brings us back into an earthiness that we need. 
We also see this around us with the prevalence of alcohol and hallucinating drugs that our society is addicted to in order to find some relief from the pain around them and enter into some sort of false reality to escape real life. Satan is trying to distract you from the reality of this world and lull you into sleepwalking through life. Always living in a dream, never anchoring yourself in what is actually true. One of the best things for your life is to anchor yourself in what is real. Several years ago, I bought a shirt. had a cartoon character on it that was fishing. And underneath this smiling fishing cartoon character was a phrase. And that's all that was on the shirt. Do you know what the phrase was? Life is good. Sitting in a camp chair, life is good. A picture of a dog, life is good. A picture of mountains and a sunset, life is good. You guys know what I'm talking about, the whole life is good trend? It's not really popular anymore, but it was a while ago. You can still find them. I encourage you to take a shirt like that, and maybe even buy one off eBay if you have to, to find an old stock one, but go get a Life is Good shirt and take a giant Sharpie and cross out good and put awful. Because that's true. Life is hard. Life is not good. Life stinks. I mean, everything you have when your body's falling apart is what you wanted when your body wasn't falling apart. You see a sports car driving down the road, and you go, man, I bet that guy's loving it. And then he's almost dead, because it took him all his life to save up enough money to buy it. You know? When you're young, all you want to do is sleep, but your kids wake you up. And when you're old, all you want to do is sleep, and your own body wakes you up. It's like you can't sleep. Life is awful. It's terrible. It's hard. It's painful. It's not good. You ever seen Shark Tank TV show? A lady named Belinda Jasmine came up with an invention that she took to Shark Tank. She called it the skinny mirror. It's a manipulation mirror. Here's what she said. I had a problem that when I looked in the mirror, I didn't like what I saw, so I decided to make a mirror that made me look the way that I wanted to look. Here was her pitch. This is a revolutionary new mirror that allows the user to see their true self. I want people to feel good about themselves when they look in the mirror. And so Kevin O'Leary looks at her and says, I deal in reality. You're lying to people. The only way to improve your life is to look in a right mirror, get a grasp on reality, and recognize that fixing that is hard work. So go do the hard work, come back to the mirror, see that it's fixed, and it'll motivate you to stay in good shape. If you don't like what you see in the mirror, then change it. Don't go buy a new mirror. Right? And she was actually pitching this as a good thing. She's like, life is good. No, it's not. Life is awful, and your mirror doesn't make it good. It makes it worse because now not only do I not like what I see, but I'm living in a lie that I'm not actually what I am. And that makes it even worse because then when I come to the grips that I am what I am, I'm devastated even more, right? Life is hard. It does no good for us to pretend like something isn't true. You ever done that? engine light comes up on your car and you take a piece of electrical tape and put it over the glass covering the, the dial there? Let's just pretend like that's not true. Right? 
slipping into some sort of alternate reality or ignoring what is actually happening in this world or maybe even somehow going to great lengths to cover up how hard and how painful something really is does not help you. And it does not solve the issue that you're struggling with. Some of you have deep-rooted problems and pain and you are covering them up and, and, and pretending like they aren't there because you think good Christians never have problems. Right? Wrong. Ecclesiastes is not afraid of the truth. In fact, this book takes all the realities of life and places them underneath spotlights to reveal the cracks and crevices, the hard times, as well as the good times. It's a very simple torture device that's prevalent in every pretty much every hotel you go to. It's this little mirror that's called a magnifying mirror, right? And really mean ones have this giant light all the way around the edge so that when you turn them on and you look in that magnifying mirror, you can see all your flaws. That's what Ecclesiastes is. It reveals the flaws of life. Because it's only when the truth is revealed and embraced that you can actually do something about it. It's only when truth is revealed and embraced that you can actually find any kind of rest and any kind of peace. With this in mind, let's look at Ecclesiastes chapter 1 together. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem, verse 2, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes, a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises, the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. And it goes around and around, goes the wind. On its circuits, the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been done is what will be done. There's nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new, it is already in the ages before us. There's no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things, yet to be among those who come after. I, the king, I'm sorry, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek wisdom and search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I've seen everything that's done under the sun, and behold, it is all is vanity, striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight. What is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I've acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. In my heart, I said great experience of wisdom and knowledge, and I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this also is but striving after the wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation. 
And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Lord, would you give us illumination this morning as we look into your word? Would you give wisdom to see the truth that you have for us? May this book be a guiding post for us to find rest and peace and fulfillment. In your name we pray. Amen. I've read the entirety of chapter 1 for you to try to give you an idea of what Ecclesiastes is like. I would encourage you to read the entire book in one sitting. Uh, it takes, if you're, if you're a slow reader, it may take you 15, 20 minutes, maybe. Read all the way through. This morning, we're just going to be looking at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 1. And we're going to be asking three questions of these verses that will not only help us understand what the verses say, but the answers of these questions will also build a foundation for the rest of the book. The first question is, who is this author and preacher? The second question, what is this idea of vanity? And the third question, is there any hope? Is there any hope? So first of all, who is this preacher? Verse 1, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. The word preacher is the word kohelet in in Hebrew, C-O-H-E-L-E-T, kohelet. And it means a person who gathers together a group for the purpose of teaching them or preaching to them. Okay, so some of your translations in front of you may have the word teacher, it just means someone who gathers together a group to teach to them. And so in our culture today, that would be a preacher. And so you see that translated as preacher. He is kohelet. He is the gatherer. The Greek word for gathering is the word ekklesia. And so the title of the book is To the Gathering, Ecclesiastes. See that? It's to the gathering of people as a person stands in front of them and teaches them or preaches to them. He's Bequeathing wisdom, he is teaching them in some manner. We'll call him Kohelet, the preacher. The traditional view of Ecclesiastes is that it was written by Solomon according to a sermon that he's given or, or calling together a group of people at the end of his life as he, looked back on his li- as he looks back on his life. The traditional view is that Solomon here is writing as both the narrator and the preacher. More contemporary theologians have suggested there are perhaps two authors, the narrator, seen in 1-1, and also the conclusion in chapter 12, verses 9 through 14. And then the narrator records the message given by this second character, Kohelet, the preacher. And then the narrator draws a conclusion there at the end, two different people. I guess it doesn't really matter, it's inspired scripture either way. My suggestion would be to you that my opinion is that The book was written by Solomon in order to capture a certain lesson that he gave to a gathering. Why would I believe that? Well, the description of Kohelet fits Solomon perfectly. Not only is he a man of position, referred to as the son of David, king in Jerusalem, he's a man unmatched both in wisdom and wealth. And so it fits that it would be Solomon. You could say, as some have suggested, It's someone else writing from the viewpoint of Solomon. Seems like a bunch of hoops to go through just to say that it wasn't Solomon. Let's just say it's Solomon, okay? He wrote Proverbs and the Song of Solomon as well, Song of Songs. This preacher is preaching from 
experience. He's participated in all the things of the world. He's had the best that the world has to offer. He's experienced everything. He's owned everything. He knows all. And yet his conclusion, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. This means you can't look at Kohelet and say that he just hasn't tried the right woman. He was married to 700 wives. And as I thought as a child, 300 porcupines there living in his... 300 concubines, 300 mistresses living there in his palace. You can't say that if he just had a little more information, or if he just knew what I knew, or... Perhaps if he had the wisdom and discernment necessary, he wouldn't view life this way. Our scripture reading revealed to us that Solomon was endowed with divine wisdom, unlike any before and any after, the wisest man to ever live. Or maybe if he just had a higher position, maybe if he had worked himself up the corporate ladder, maybe if he had a leadership opportunity. No, he was the king of Israel in Jerusalem. What about his bank account? Maybe he needed financial stability or a foolproof retirement plan or maybe a large asset portfolio. Solomon was one of the richest men, wealthiest men to have ever walked the planet, if not the wealthiest, the richest. So my friend, listen to me this morning. It's not because Solomon lacked anything that he says everything is meaningless. It's because he possessed everything. That he could cry out with both theological and empirical certainty. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. This book is not written because of a lack of anything, but because of the acquisition of everything. The conclusion is that all is vanity. What is this concept of vanity? After you see it translated differently, if you have the NIV in front of you, it says meaningless, I believe. If you have the Christian Standard Bible, it would say futility. ESV, King James says vanity. This word translated vanity here in your scripture journals is the Hebrew word hevel, H-E-B-E-L, hevel. It's kind of hard to translate. It's a, uh, it's a word that sounds like what it is. Hevel, it means breath, vapor, smoke. If you were to walk out on a winter day here in South Bend and you were to go, and you see the, the, the vapor in front of you that disappears, that's what this word is. Hevel, it's smoke, vapor. It's translated as breath, vapor. Psalm 94, 10 and 11. He who teaches man knowledge, the Lord knows the thoughts of man. They are but a hevel, a breath. Psalm 144. O Lord, what is man that you regard him? Or the son of man that you think of him? Man is like a breath. A hevel, a breath. His days are like a passing shadow. Proverbs 21.6, the getting of treasures by a lying tongue is like fleeting vapor. Same word. Interestingly enough, it's also translated in the Old Testament as the word idol. Idol, not as in like I'm idol, I'm not working, but I worship idols, I-D-O-L, idol. 
in the sense that idols don't have any genuine power. Praying to some, to some wooden statue or some stone ornament or some metal figurine has some sort of mystical power. It doesn't. So therefore, even idols are hevel. They're, they're vapor, they're mist, they're smoke, they're meaningless. And so that word is actually translated idols. First Kings 16, 13, all the sins of Bashan, the sins of Ella, his son, whom they had sinned, and when they had made Israel to sin, provoking the Lord of God to Israel to anger with their idols, with their vanity, with this worship of something that isn't real. It's also translated worthless. Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, all the the clans of the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, Jeremiah chapter 2, What wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me and went after worthlessness, became worthless? God's like, what have I not done for you? And yet you still leave me and you go after something worthless. Obviously it's translated vanity and vain as it is here in Ecclesiastes, Proverbs 31, verse 30. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain. Same word. But a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. The New Testament concept that we would see is the idea of of mist. James chapter 4. Come now, you say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town, spend a year there, trade and make a profit. You do not know what tomorrow will bring. Many of you know the next phrase. What is your life for you are a mist, a vapor that appears for a little time and yet it vanishes. Has the idea of transient, empty, temporary, elusive. I think perhaps the best translation for today's English, the best translation is probably the CSB where it says futile. Because for us, this idea of vain or or vanity may carry the idea of that there's something wrong with it or sinful in a sense. And so you may read Proverbs 31.30 and say, uh, favor is deceitful and beauty is vain. Therefore, ladies, don't try to be beautiful because it's bad. None of us believe that, right? We would just say, no, it's not bad. It's transient. It's futile. It's empty. It's elusive. So we see this word in Ecclesiastes. We need to understand that Solomon here, very important, I want you to listen carefully. Every time you see the concept of chevel, this this breath, Solomon is making a value statement. He's making a value statement. All is vanity in attempting to accomplish something. Like attempting to buy a loaf of bread with a quarter, it cannot accomplish what you desire because it doesn't possess that value. All is vanity means that everything has no value. It has no value in attempting to accomplish some sort of greater purpose in your life. It has no value in attempting to bring joy and happiness that will never fade away. It has no value in attempting to bring lasting fulfillment in rest in contentment. This means that Solomon is admitting that there are some things in life that do provide temporary happiness and joy. Just like when you go, 
So, so that mist really is there. I mean, that is your breath. You can see it. When smoke goes up from a fireplace, it's real. It's there. And yet it goes away so fast. So he's not saying that it doesn't exist like some sort of matrix mentality that, that nothing that you see is real. It's just all sort of some sort of game that some, you know, aliens playing with all of our minds and we're living in some sort of virtual reality. That's not what he's saying. He's saying it's real, but it's transitory. It's futile. It's here and it's gone. That it's, it has no value. Here, sell, buy this. What is that? It's breath in a can. <sighs> Five bucks. It has no value, right? This means that Solomon is saying that not only does it have no value, but it's all is vanity of vanities, emptiness of emptiness. This the way that Hebrew poetry would say a superlative. Like we would say Jesus is the king of kings. He's the lord of lords. He is, we would, we would say like that guy is a man among men, right? It's a superlative. That's a man among men right there. And so not only is Solomon saying it's empty, but it's empty of empties. It's the highest form of futility, everything in your life. But is all really vanity? Ben came into my office yesterday. I get kind of jacked up when I'm writing my sermon on manuscript all day on Friday. And he walked in and I said, Ben, all is vanity. He said, is it really? Like, like everything ever to exist ever? All? Well, no, because Solomon gives an exception. And that exception is found 20 time, 29 times in the book. It's found in verse 3. Every time the word vanity is used, I want you to circle it. And every time the, word, the phrase under the sun is found, I want you to put a square around it. If you're writing in your journals, that's how I want you to mark this. Vanity with circles. You'll see four circles there in verse 1. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is. Vanity of vanities, all, actually five in verse 2. And then what does a man gain while the toil when she toils under the sun? There's his condition. Only the things that exist under the sun are vanity. And that's encouraging, isn't it? Until you realize that that phrase thing means everything in your life. So the only condition to vanity is everything that you will ever experience in your whole life. Happy birthday. Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. Your entire life is vain. Futile. Worthless, empty, vanishing. So then we have a question. Since this is true, how are we supposed to interact with life? I want to give you kind of a thought, a seed thought that we're going to keep coming back to, okay? Your problems in this life are not necessarily a result of life being futile, but because you expect it not to be futile. In other words, your problems and the shortcomings of this life 
aren't with the actual experience, it's with your expectations of the experience. That's why we say this phrase is a value statement. If you walk into, you know, if you walk into uh, Martin's with a quarter and you expect to buy a loaf of bread, you'll be disappointed. But if you expect to have it in your pocket the whole time, as long as your pocket doesn't have a hole in it, you'll be fine. Hey, look, I still got my quarter. Isn't that great? Hey, but you don't have any bread. Yeah, of course I don't have bread. It's not going to buy bread. Because my expectations are different. And so your problems with this life are not in regards to life. That's what, that's what Kohalet is trying to teach you here. Your problems are with the value that you place on this life. It's a value statement. If you expect a five-year-old to have an A in calculus, you will always be disappointed. It does not matter how brilliant that person is and how brilliant you think your child is. You'll be disappointed. I mean, we're happy if our kids are drawing in the lines, right? Mom, look at the picture I drew. Wow! You didn't even go outside the lines. And we're excited. How's your grade in calculus, Johnny? Huh? Go to your room. More study. You'll always be disappointed. You expect your 2005 Toyota Camry to win the Indy 500 this year. You're going to be sorely disappointed, right? If it's on the track, they, they asked me to drive with them? That is awesome. But if I expect to win, forget it. You expect your spouse to be perfect. Or you expect your kids never to let you down. Or anything on this earth to not be futile you will be disappointed. But then that drives us to another philosophical question. Go a little bit deeper. Peel the onion back one more layer. Why do we even have these expectations? Right? My dog has no expectations but that I will come home. And it's like every time we come home after being gone, it's like she's never seen us. (gasps) You know? That's why people have dogs, so that something in their life looks forward to them coming home. And you're like, I can't believe you're here. I can't believe you're here. I can't believe you're here. You know? No expectations are so easy. Why do we even have these expectations? Because you were created with them. Because, listen carefully, you were created with a desire for fulfillment. You were created with a desire for joy. You were created to want to be happy. You were created to want to be loved. You were created to want to pillow your head at night and think, I just can't take it anymore. I'm so full. If one more person tells me they love me, Right, Or if I get one more thing of happiness, I'm going to explode. Isn't that all where we want to be? Did you know you were actually created with that desire? Like every desire at its root form is God-given. That you were placed in a world that's totally futile. Because no matter how good dinner was last night, you'll still need to eat again today. No matter how hard you worked on Friday... Tomorrow, you start all over. 
No matter how on point your Christmas shopping was last year, there are just 77 days left until this year again. You believe that? Your new car is no longer new. That new house now has problems. You, personally, you look better than you did before, but that handsome young husband you married now has rolls and wrinkles. Right? It's futile. You long for something more. You long for something greater. So now we've come to the conclusion that everything in your life is futile and meaningless, yet you have a desire for purpose and fulfillment. So where do I go from here? Friend, if you're not a Christian, nowhere. Listen to me carefully. If, you, if Jesus Christ is not your King, your Lord and Savior, you have no hope. You go nowhere, and that's what he wants you to see. If you're not a Christian, happy birthday, Merry Christmas, Happy New Year. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die. And this leads us to our last question. Is there any hope? By your faces, I can tell that I've taken you exactly where I want you to be. Reality. In a book called Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis has a quote that says this. If I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. If you're here and you're not a Christian, vanity of vanities, futility of futility, meaninglessness of meaninglessness is where your life will stay unless you find Christ. But don't be mistaken, the hope is not found in God somehow changing the events of this life to be better for those who trust in Him. Oh good, now that I'm saved, right? Now I'm not going to participate in futility, now I'm going to participate in, in good things. Now I'm, I'm going to walk away from, you know, uh, Texas Roadhouse and I'm going to walk into Ruth's Chris, right? Because I'm a Christian now. No. It's not as though God changes your experiences on this life when you become a Christian. So don't believe that, because that would not be true. The hope is not found in God giving you some sort of spiritual Tylenol so that your life doesn't hurt as much or shield you from the harsh climate of life under the sun. That somehow now it's like people that I love died and I'm not sad. Right? Yay, my car broke down. Isn't that great? No money in the bank. No way to get to work to earn money. Life's awesome. Life is good. No, life stinks. Right? No, it's not as though it's not as though God somehow deadens your pain. That's what some people think. I'm going to be a Christian. My life's going to get better. I'm going to become a Christian. and Pain's not going to hurt as much. Right? No. Scripture says we grieve. We hurt. Here's my thesis for the book of Ecclesiastes. Okay? Your only hope is found in expecting less from this life and expecting more from Jesus. That's, this is the thesis of the book. Your only hope is found 
and expecting less from this life and expecting more from Jesus. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world forfeits his own soul? What value? There's our value statement again. Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? You know, I think this is what Jesus is talking about in John chapter 4 when he approaches the woman at the well and he says, hey, can I have a drink of water? And she says, why are you asking me? I'm a woman. He says, well, I tell you what, if you ask me for water, I'm not just going to give you water. I'm going to give you living water so you'll never be thirsty again. What does she say? Give me such water. Because she's earthy. She doesn't want to make the trek up to the well in the heat of the day because of her sinful condition, not being able to draw with the other ladies. She doesn't want to be thirsty anymore. Jesus says, what I have for you is so much better. I think it's what what Jesus is getting to in John 6, where he says, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to this world. Like, I am that bread of life. I'm here. You eat bread, you get hungry, but when you take taste of me, you find something you've never found before. You find fulfillment. What was the response in John 6? Sir, give us this bread always! Without Christ, nothing in this life serves any purpose at all. Without the promise of heaven, without a relationship with the creator of this world, friends, listen to me. Everything in your life is meaningless. It's vanity. It's futile. And without Jesus, that's a hard stop, right? That the only way to find hope is to expect less from this life and expect more from Jesus. So when your spouse lets you down, you go, I I knew you were going to do that because you're sinful. Doesn't mean it doesn't hurt. But of course, of course, you can't be God. You're not. And when your new house that you just had built and you move in has a mouse in it or the AC breaks or the roof leaks or a tree falls on it, of course that would happen. We live in a fallen world. doesn't mean it doesn't hurt. It just means that your expectations are so much lower. But when you get to Jesus, you're never let down. Because he's the bread of life. He's the living water. This is what Paul is trying to communicate in 1 Corinthians 15. If Christ had not been raised, your faith is what? Futile. It's that same word. If you were to take the Greek translation of the Old Testament, you were to look up Ecclesiastes 1-2, you were to take that Greek word, trace it through the New Testament, it's the same word. Futile. Empty. If Jesus is not alive, what are we doing here? Let's go to the lake! Right? If Jesus is still in the grave, let's go to Las Vegas and gamble everything away and take our chances. 
Because 1 Corinthians 15, 32, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we're going to die. So he who dies with the most experiences and the most toys wins. If what we have is not real, then nothing matters. That's why you need to go to the evolutionist and say, if you really did come from a, a clump of goo that had no purpose, and everything is continuing its process, and there's nothing after you die, and you have no purpose, then what? And the best answer they can give you is, well, I can live as if I had purpose, because that gives me hope while I'm here. But everything in reality is worth nothing. By the way, you ever think it's funny? I shouldn't say funny. It's, it's uh, paradoxical. That people who claim to have no purpose are the ones who are so vehement about a purpose. Like all these social justice, social action leagues of people who believe there is no God. It hasn't clicked with them that everything they're doing, if they're true, doesn't matter. Because it's survival of the fittest. So why in the world would I fight for a weak one? If the strong will dominate anyway. It's because the image of God is on their life and they can't help but seek a purpose. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, the purpose you're seeking is Jesus. You have a hole in your life the size of Christ that nothing else will fill. Without Christ, there's no hope of satisfaction. There's no hope of purpose. Without Christ, all is vain and futile. Running on a hamster wheel. Trying to prevent the inevitable. So live life to the fullest because the grim reaper is standing around the next corner. Take it all away. Turn to uh, chapter 12. Let's read Solomon's conclusion. I'll wrap it up for you. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 13. The end of the matter. Semicolon. Isn't it nice if somebody gives you like the conclusion at the end? The end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Here's what he says. Here's the conclusion. Fear God. Live for him, because one day it will be worth it. Not in this life, but in the next. Fear God. Live for him, and it will be worth it. I have a saying that I say at funerals, and I say it, I think I've said it at every graveside service that I've done, and I say it on purpose that way. And it's this phrase, or it's this sentence, there's something in your heart as you lower the body of your dear loved one into the ground that says it shouldn't be like this. And it shouldn't. Because if this is the best life has to offer, we're all in big trouble. Because all is vanity under the sun. I want to leave you with an illustration that should guide your thought process with this, okay? 
Because I don't want you to walk out and to think, okay, I don't really know what to do. Like, like you're talking in these existential realities up here. And I walk out there and I open the door to my car and I go, love God, but all is vanity. Where do I go from here? Right? And so I don't want you to walk away with that, but I kind of want you to have that tension because we're going to discover the truth in the next many months as we work through Ecclesiastes. But I want to give you an illustration that's going to leave you with a phrase that we're going to use and we're kind of, kind of going to develop our own um, vocabulary, like Kohelet, the guy who's speaking, and Chavel, this vanity, uselessness, okay? I'm going to leave you with another phrase. So let's, let's say, for instance, I, well, first of all, it is a true statement. I live in a house with, with a, my wife's an incredible cook. She's a wonderful cook. Amazing. It's one of the reasons why I struggle the way that I do. It's because I got my weight out where I can keep an eye on it, and then I got to get it back, right? Because my wife's just an incredible cook. So let's say, let's use that as an illustration and say, um, my birthday had come, and my wife decides that she's going to make my favorite meal, and she's going to get someone else to watch the kids, and we're going to sit down, and we're going to have an amazing dinner there in our dining room. And, and, um, I didn't know she was going to make this meal. She kept it a surprise. And so she makes the most, I mean, I want you to fill in the blank, the most incredible meal you've ever had. I mean, for me, it's Southern comfort food of, you know, steak and mac and cheese and everything that you should not eat. Okay. And, and I come home and my wife says, listen, I, I have a special dinner prepared for us for your birthday to say happy birthday. And we're going to sit down and we're going to have this incredible meal with no distractions. We're not going to cut up any food, you know, any of that. We're just going to sit down. We're going to have a great, a great meal. Now, what would happen if I sat down at the dinner table and I looked at her and I said, honey, I don't need this food. All I need is you, baby. And I slide the food across. I don't even eat it. To eat this food would, would just tell you that I like something more than I like you. So I'm not even going to eat it. Put it aside. Let's just talk. Let's, let's stare into each other's eyes and let's have a, a conversation because we can never talk when the kids are here. So I, I don't need the food. Thank you. It's amazing. It's my favorite. But if I were to really eat this, then I would be showing you that I like food more than I like you. And, uh, and so I'm just going to put it to the side and let's, let, let's catch up. How, how was your day? How would that make her feel? Or what would happen, by the way, that's Platonism, if you want a term for that. Not just because the dinner's on a plate, but, it, but because of Plato, okay? Platonism. There's something called Christian Platonism, which means everything here is kind of bad, but everything that God does is good. Set that aside. What would happen if I walked in and she said the same thing, and I was so overjoyed that she would do this for me? that I look down at my plate and I eat for 30 minutes straight. And I'm so consumed with letting her know how much I love her and that I'm so thankful for this meal that I never look up and I never say anything. The wives are smiling, the husbands are frowning, okay? That's called hedonism. You got one aspect, everything, everything physical in this world is bad, we need to be, suffer, don't be happy, wear black, nothing's good, cranky Christian, you know, don't raise your hand in service, don't get happy about God, don't you dare smile while you sing, you know, but when I get to heaven, I'm going to be pumped, 
And the other side is filling my life with stuff without ever recognizing God. Both end up in misery, right? So what do you do? You live life before God's face. You enjoy the meal and you look up and you say, thank you, thank you. And you take another bite and you say, this is amazing. And then you take a bite of the steak and, and maybe a corner of it accidentally got burned. You say, that's okay. That's fine. It doesn't matter. Because I can eat it with you. Because I get to enjoy this with you. And, and I participate and I, and I relish what's been given me. And I look up and I relish the giver. I say, God, you are so kind that you would allow me to experience this. And I have no expectation that it's going to last forever. I have no expectation that it's going to actually make me happy long term. I mean, it really is nice right now to own this or to do this or to enjoy this or to have a spouse or to not have a spouse. But I'm enjoying it before your face. And so Ecclesiastes, if, if I want to spoil it for you, Kohelet is calling us to enjoy the, the, the brevity of life, the futility of life before God's face. And say, God, my kids are young, and they're not going to be young forever, but thank you. And God, my kids are out of the house. Thank you. I have a car that works, and I love my car. Thank you. Enjoying life before God's face. Because if you're looking for satisfaction in this world, you'll not find it, because everything under the sun is vanity. But you will find joy and fulfillment by expecting the things in this life to be vanity, but enjoying this life before the face of God. Heavenly Father, we are so excited to be able to look into this book that brings a reality to life, that helps us understand that life is but a breath. That the things of this world are futile because they're marred by sin. But one day, you will take us into a world that we can experience with you physically that you will be with us that you will dwell with us on the new heavens and the new earth and then we can live life before your face physically but now we are called to walk by faith and so may we enjoy life before your face may we enjoy creation but not to the expense of the Creator. May we enjoy your good gifts, but not to set aside the giver. And may we not discount the gifts that you've given to us because of some arrogant piety, but may we enjoy life before your face. Friends, with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, can you 
do business with God where you're seated. Would you pray and call out to God to draw your heart to himself during this time, to place life in its rightful place and hold Jesus in his rightful place? Friend, if you're here and you're not a Christian, you need to think hard. There is no purpose outside of Jesus. You can find your life, you can spend your life searching for it. When the answer is given in Scripture, to turn to Jesus as your only source, as your only king, as your only hope, not by works of righteousness, which we've done, but by his mercy, he saved us. Would you call out to Jesus in the quietness of this moment as your only purpose, as your only hope? You do business with God silently while the instrument plays.